Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. This is the last of six shows that we recorded in two days. Yep. And it's been fun. We've had some time off. Yeah. Middle of October. A lot of stuff coming up. Yeah, well, and it was that block of shows we recorded at NDC in Sydney. They sort of carried us forward. In fact, this is a show we were supposed to do there. That's right. And ended up through various reasons getting pushed and then scheduling-wise. And so now we're finally getting it, which I'm excited about. I'm excited about it as well. And uh, Heather's coming up here in just a minute. But first, let's go through our bits. Mine is called Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, dude. What do you got? Well, I don't know if you know about this site, but it's very powerful. Is it? It's called truthfinder.com. Hmm. This is basically a background check that is very thorough and very popular, and it's endorsed by lots of companies you probably know. And I'm in the process of doing a search on myself, and it came up with all the right relations and contacts and wow, social media accounts. You can use it to find people that are missing. Oh, wow. You can use it to check on your neighbors to see if any of them have criminal records. You can use it to screen potential dates or hires. It's pretty awesome. And it's just publicly accessible data, huh? Yeah. That's spooky. It's just, it's spooky and powerful, you know? Yeah. And, and there's a big disclaimer when you go to truthfinder.com. It's like, warning, you may see some things here that you may be embarrassed about or whatever. Right. Potentially surprising. Proceed with caution. <laughs> hmm. Well, I thought we were living in a post-truth society, or maybe just you were. Truthy. Truthish. <laughs> we, there's truthiness here. Yes, it feels true. Is that it? It feels true. So it's truthish. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I got. I hope it's of use to some people. And there you go. Who's talking to us today, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 1504. We recorded back in December of 2017 with one Billy Hollis. And of course, the show is titled UX Design Rants because that is Billy. That is Billy. Billy's the only guy I know who can rant for a good five minutes about buttons in an elevator. And that, that's classic. It's, yeah, absolutely. And he's not wrong. That's the beautiful thing. He's not no. just ranting for ranting's sake. Buttons in an elevator can be screwed up in remarkable ways. He wanted to do a YouTube video series, remember, about yeah. all of the bad UI in the world. Not just software, yep. but bad design. But it, it makes people unhappy, I think, when you start diving too far into that. Mm. And it's interesting that it's, you know, when I think a couple of the go-to people on this sort of design side, it's, it's Mark Miller and Billy Hollis. Yeah. And they both have, you know, sort of a tendency towards the rantiness about some of these things. I'm going to read this particular comment from a few months back, and Billy also responded to it. This is from Jason, who says, I was nodding vigorously, agreeing with Billy about how apps from Microsoft seem to me to have serious UX issues and bugs that they didn't have before. For me, it started with the release of Windows 10 and upgrading my Surface Pro 3 from Win 8 substantially downgraded my experience in OneNote. Right. Now, let's think about this for a minute. He's talking about light that getting off of Windows 8 onto Windows 10 made things worse. Yep. That's amazing. Yeah. The ribbon. Yep. Yeah. So, it downgraded my experience in OneNote, OneDrive, and the touch pen interface. They took away features and broke several things. I was a bit surprised that Billy said he switched to Groove. Mm. 
After my Win10 upgrade experience, I resolve to avoid Microsoft apps when an alternative exists. The exception is Azure, because it seems to me when Scott Goo is involved, good things happen. Right. And Billy actually responded that he didn't actually go over to Groove. He's still been using uh, the media player for routine use. In fact, I find mm -hmm. the new players on Win10 far more annoying than the original Windows media player. I like the Windows media player. Yeah. It hangs once in a while, but that's okay. Yeah, for sure. I can put up with it. Anyway, I can't argue with you. You know, it's interesting that Microsoft themselves have been struggling so much with UX. Different teams take it more seriously than other groups. So it's, it's hard to know. So, Jason, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via Facebook, since we publish every show there as well. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We're watching you. <laughs> All right, you're creepy. <laughs> yeah, he's a creepy guy. There's a, there's a little creepy going on. Creep factor high. Well, I'm sure Heather has some comments on that. So let's, uh, not the creep thing, uh, the UI thing, you know. Okay. So let's introduce her formally. Heather Wild is CTO of Rocketeer, that's R-O-C-E-T-E-E-R, -E -E and is also known as the Unicorn Whisperer due to her special focus on entrepreneurs. She's a personal and professional growth expert, executive coach, author, and speaker. As a founding employee of Evernote, which was one of my better-known frameworks recently, she oversaw the company's growth from thousands to 100 million customers. Wow. Among her other awards, Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid selected her for a commendation for her work in increasing STEM education. Wilde's writing as a columnist for Inc. and Forbes spans social media, entrepreneurialism, startups, leadership, fundraising, and diversity issues. She currently lives in Las Vegas, Nevada, a very civilized location. Welcome, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Any comments on the UX thing there? <laughs> well, UX is a very complex topic. I've, I've spent a lot of my career and made a lot of money on helping people with UX. So hmm. basically, it, it all comes down to make sure that what you're designing is, is something that users actually can use. So if, if it's not working for you, then complain. <laughs> yeah, um, that's the low bar. Usability is one thing, but delight is the next level. And getting there is a challenge. But that's the thing. Like, all you have to do nowadays is make it work because people don't expect very much. <laughs> the bar is so low. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how many times are you sitting there with an Apple TV or whatever, and you're like, just you're sitting there with the loading bar and waiting for your Netflix to unglitch. And we're just so used to now, like having that that happy 15 minutes or however that it's glitching out to go and go to the bathroom or something like a, like it used to be commercial time. And now it's glitch time because we're used to that. So we're, the bar is low on UX at the moment. That comment made me think of some of my least favorite websites UI-wise, and FedEx is one of them. Oh, I don't man. know if you yeah. ever tried to print a waybill, but oh. that FedEx website is just awful. Well, what's interesting is some of the sites that you would think have terrible UX are actually done very well from a UX perspective. Like, have you ever been on the Spirit Airlines website? Nope. Oh, it's so if you go there, 
anyone listening to this, uh, pop it up in another window and, and go to the spirit site. It's, <laughs> it's horrible web colors. It's, it's like all yellow. There's buttons and things happening all over the place. And there's like a flash window <laughs> or something oh my happening there. Yeah, but really, all of it is designed to oh make your eye go towards a button. Are you guys looking at it right now? I am now. Looks like a yellow jacket threw up all over it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's carefully designed to make you go towards the buy now button to book a flight. And so, this is actually really good UI. Buy now. Sign up now. More info. Mm-hmm. And that Comic Sans font is beautiful, isn't it? It's <laughs> wonderful. That's not Comic Sans. So for people who have like a, a design aesthetic that like most of our developer friends who want to do clean things because we think that's pretty and simple and wonderful, this is actually what works for customers. Yeah. And in, I'm presuming they've actually instrumented this, that they've actually measured that this is effective. You, you wouldn't get here off the top of your head. This is not a, what you would think of as an, as an optimal design. No. And they're constantly changing. They're constantly updating the site. And then they have tons of market research that are making this personalized for everyone that comes there. So this is where modern UX and machine learning and personalization takes us to. Yep. Wow. Yeah, I remember doing a DNR TV with Adam Kogan, of all people, and he was going through the ways that you should design your websites. And it was all just classic stuff, H1, H2, H3, like use those to denote important content and show the underline of all the links. And I thought to myself, really? Because don't you really just need to make them in a different and obvious color? And, nope, underline them all. And you know what? He's right because... It's more foolproof, but it just doesn't look good. Mm. Nope. It looks terrible. Terrible. But it works. Like on BuzzFeed, they not only underline them, but they highlight the links. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they look even more awful. Like there's a paragraph with a big blue underline and a light blue background for every link to click on. <laughs> oh. They'll <laughs> click it. Can't miss it. Big ugly underlines. Yep. But when you talk about SEO, clicked on links on web pages is a huge credibility piece. So they care less about how much you like reading the article and more about the fact that you clicked on the link. And their UX reflects that. Yep. I mean, these are, are things that people call me into their companies to help them with. I mean, it, interestingly, the role of the CTO has evolved over the year to mean anything that is technical in nature in a company. So I, I work with marketing departments to help them with their social media strategies because they've been caught unaware right. of how to switch from traditional marketing to how to deal with this data thing. And so it's not just designing products anymore and sitting back and being an engineer and not talking to anybody. It's, it's creating a whole digital strategy for an entire company. Wow. Yeah. You got any more awful sites we can laugh at? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. There's so many. I can't think of any off the top of my head, though. I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, it'll come to you. It's inevitable. Yeah. yeah. Sure. You know, I'm going to make that callback to, to Jason's comment about Win 10. And part of me wonders if Microsoft's moving so quickly to shipping software these days 
that UX almost isn't in the consideration anymore. Or maybe what they think is good design really isn't. Well, I mean, have you noticed that on the splash screen for Windows now, they've actually started adding advertisements? Yeah. I noticed this the other day that when you're just on the login screen, it has, at least on ours, it has three ads to click on in the background. And I'm like, why would you want to do that? Why is that a great idea to have that there? But some, it's... Especially when what you're doing is clearly focused on getting something done. Yeah. Right. And it's just randomly on the desktop. <laughs> like, it doesn't even make any sense where they've put them. Yeah. So somebody at Microsoft needs to rethink that one. Unless, like with Spirit, it is making them some money. So who knows? I think of the way that, you know, the groove music player and all those things have been so simplified. And, you know, maybe it's because they have got the message from Mac, right? That, oh, we like the Mac because it's simple. All right, so let's take away features. (laughs) (laughs) That's good, right? We don't want to overwhelm the user with too many things. So let's just take them away. Right. But that's the difference between a Mac and a PC. I mean, when you're designing features, the Windows to me has always been for the person who wants the menus, who wants all of those things that they can do in the file bar and that you just have menus upon menus on menus. And with Mac... It's not that those things aren't there for them to do, but it's always that you're they're hidden. So you have right. to go a few more screens and define them. And it's not that these are not good operating systems and not equally powerful. It's just for Windows, it's for people that want all of that up front and center. And for Mac, it's for people that are... Don't want to know what a file is. Pretty much. Mm. <laughs> and it's interesting though that I mean, I think in some ways, I always wondered why the price points weren't flipped. Because the Mac was, in my mind, always designed for your grandma. Because it's just easier to use and less likely for them to get in trouble with stuff. Right. And Windows like was ultimately more powerful up front. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. It just, I mean, it's not that one is more powerful than the other. It's just the way that the operating system was designed. What about apps? I mean... First of all, Evernote, awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'm really proud that we got to work on that. So tell me about app problems, <laughs> UX-wise. Let's talk that. So there's actually a perfect example of this from Evernote. So everybody can take missteps here. And while Evernote always debuted every new version, top of the app store, five stars, tons of downloads, one time we released one and we ended up with two stars right away Hmm. and half the downloads that we always had gotten. And we had no idea what was going wrong. And then I noticed in our, in our support queue, we had 10 people reporting just 10 out of 10,000 emails that we had. Wow! And that's not an exaggeration. Just 10 people reported that the fonts looked blurry and that they were having trouble reading them. And then I, looked at what phone they were reporting it from and the eyes were on iPhone 3s. And we had designed the latest version for the features of the iPhone 5. Uh-huh. And we'd forgotten to regression test back to the iPhone oh, 3. Wow. So we checked it on the iPhone 4 and it looked okay. But we hadn't realized that the majority of people hadn't even upgraded from iPhone 3s yet. So the problem was we created a beautiful new layout, which was 
a light, light green background, mm-hmm. a dark green font, and green accents. And so it basically looked like mush on the iPhone 3. And anyone that was colorblind couldn't even read it at all, even though it passed the accessibility tests that are available for wow. us. Interesting. That's always a challenge with using greens, right? Red, green blindness is the most common one. Absolutely. So we'd picked ones that were specifically okay as far as the accessibility tests go. And we even had somebody that was colorblind, red, green in our office that said that it was fine on the iPhone 5. Right. But the iPhone 3 showed it a different way. And more people had iPhone 3s at that time than any other phone. So we had to create a new patch that allowed people to choose their own layout background of three different types. As soon as we did that, we were back up to five stars. Interesting. Interesting indeed. I appreciate that people actually put the effort out to give you a better rating because, I mean, my experience with apps has been once you've gotten a negative rating, it never goes away. Mm. Oh, well, see, that's the interesting thing about the App Store. And I don't know if Google Play Store does the same thing, but in Mm -hmm. iOS, the rating is only for that version. Right. So as soon as you can get a new version out, your rating goes back to to nothing. And that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Because it's a different piece of software. Sure. So some people, like, as soon as they have a bad version, they'll change, like, one line of code and release it again to get rid of their old version, which is... uh, (laughs) So it can be gamed, of course. Yeah, without fixing the critical problem. The guys at Apple will reject things unless they see it's substantially different, but they don't necessarily have time to test everything. So sometimes you can slip it through. Yeah, yeah. Well, and hopefully you actually have addressed the issue quickly, which sounds like what you guys actually did was, oh, we realized what the issue is. We came up with a patch for it, push out a new version. Those bad numbers are going to go away. I don't know that there's actually any urgency for those bad numbers to go away until it's fixed anyway. You're just going to get bad numbers again. Absolutely. And we even put out a notice of exactly what we did and why we did that. Because the, the way that I see it, most people that have a problem are not going to write in and tell you about it. They're just going to leave. Or if it's not bad enough for them to write in, then they may deal with it for a bit until they're too annoyed. And you don't ever want people to get to that point. Yeah, and uh, guys, just hold that thought for one minute while we take a moment for this very important message. Hi, this is Richard. The Dev Intersection Fall Show this year will be December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand Hotel. The lineup is awesome. Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, Scott Hunter, yes, all the Scots. But also a ton of great industry speakers for some insight on what's coming up in the world of .NET. You know, Core 3 is bringing client technology like WinForms and WPF into play. Could it be time to migrate your existing desktop apps to this new technology? Come learn more at Dev Intersection, December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand. Go to devintersection.com to register and use the code .NETROCKS to get a discount. All right, we're back. Stotnet Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. And that's Heather Wilde. And we're talking UX. All the things. <laughs> all the things. All the thoughts. I'm still hooked on this idea of could Win 10 actually have a strategy where they come up with a good UX environment that new <laughs> features can be added to and not screw it up? I mean, is it even feasible? Or do you really have to rethink UX with every feature? I think with the start bar, they have to like scrap it and come up with something else, but... It's just that wrong. 
<laughs> I think what they were trying to do was copy the launch pad from Mac. Right. Which I don't think they were that organized. Yeah, honestly, I don't even use the launch bar on Mac. And no. most people I know on Mac, they like do whatever they can to recustomize that. So just like on Windows, people come up with their own way to recustomize the start bar because the thing that everyone that uses a computer for their main source of livelihood has in common is as soon as you get a machine, you wipe off everything that it comes with and then you reinstall it to whatever you feel like. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So the key to this whole UX problem is really give people a blank slate and let them do whatever they want to customize it for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be the truth. And I've always looked at the start bar as it existed in Windows 10 as a political compromise between the old Windows people that made Win 8 and the new Windows people who hated it. I think the user had relatively little role in what came out of this. At least we don't have Clippy. Well, I miss (laughs) Clippy. Clippy could be so much better today, too, you know? Clippy was (laughs) self-aware. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least it's not Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Bob plus plus. Hey, more more importantly, do you remember Bob was a, a product of Melinda French? She was the project leader on that. And she would go on to be Melinda Gates. Mm-hmm. So we have to be nice to her. Well, maybe <laughs> that's where like Bob turned into Cortana. Yeah. Huh. I guess in a way. Via a video game, sort of, maybe. <laughs> but these were all failed UX experiments trying to find a more, I don't know, human interface to computing. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. And the idea is that it's okay to fail uh, because mm-hmm. people are trying to talk to their machines or communicate with their computer in, in new ways. And for some people, Clippy was the best way to communicate with their office products. Cortana, mm-hmm. some people love it, just like some people use the Google Assistant and, and some people use Siri all the time. There's only about 2% of people that do that. Right. But for some people, they would cry if that went away. Yeah. So there are definite strides going forward in user experience and usability. But if we don't have these experiments, we're never going to move forward. Yeah. I've built the Coast Place to be Google Assistant friendly with some lights and the thermostat and just a few other bits and pieces. And I find myself starting to use it, right? Checking measurement changes in a recipe via, you know, the Google apps. Like, you know, what's this temperature in Fahrenheit and Celsius? Those kinds of things. Like, they, there's a case to be made. I love my Alexa show. Yeah? Love it. Yeah. Yeah. And it took Kelly a while to warm up to it, too. But now we have uh, Music Wars. <laughs> so, I'll play, Alexa, play some Stevie Wonder. She'll go, <laughs> Alexa, stop. Alexa, play some country music. And I'm like, don't! <laughs> Alexa, stop! So, we have uh, an Alexa Fire TV cube, and the cube actually is basically a show that shows on a regular TV. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And basically what we've programmed it to do is to turn on the Apple TV. (laughs) 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 Because... We have HBO Go, for example, but we cannot right. get it to open HBO Go. It keeps trying to open HBO inside 
Amazon Prime. And we're just like, if the Amazon Fire TV won't open the subscription we already have for HBO, then it still needs a little work. Yeah, right. It's, it's one of those interesting realities in a lot of this. You know, like, you know how important this ambient computing and this voice computing space is because it is getting so hostile between the different stacks. Mm. You know, I love my Nest thermostat, but controlling a Nest thermostat via Alexa sucks. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, it, and that's just, that's the sort of thing you're seeing, right? It's like I had to go find thermostats that will work well with the other system, right? You have to pick a camp right now when it comes to these UI. We need a Palumi interface for this, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's not generalized. We can Microsoft flow all this stuff. and then <laughs> Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm about to buy a new house, and I'm excited because I get to buy all new kitchen appliances that will be IoT-enabled. <laughs> awesome. What'd you do? Burn the old place down? You're leaving everything behind? Well, no. I, I'm renting right now. And so, in the uh, new I place, see. I'm just going to be like, okay, new stove, new fridge, yeah. new, <laughs> new ovens, new grill, all of it, IoT enabled. And so, when I'm, I don't know, 15 miles away from the house, I can tell the turkey that I've left in the oven for two days to turn on. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will go wrong with that. That'll be fine. You're that kind of cook, are you? Okay. <laughs> Well, I did find a bagel I left in the toaster from two days ago. So, yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Siri, rehydrate my bagel. There. <laughs> We're going to have to go for the well-done solution here. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to disable the fast-forward buttons on this podcast so the listeners must listen to my dumb jokes in the middle of the show. Cortana, disable fast-forward. Siri, disable fast-forward. <laughs> Alexa, disable fast-forward. Did I miss anyone? No, I think those are the big three. I think that must be it. Yeah. And now I'm just going to not tell a joke. Ha! Because <laughs> you're trapped. You're trapped. Gotcha. All right. Well, it's actually time to give away a $200 Amazon gift card, compliments of Progress Telerik, to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about the most comprehensive developer toolkit for building modern apps on the market today, Telerik DevCraft. With more than 1,100 Telerik.net and Kendo UI JavaScript components and controls, you can easily build modern, high-performant web, mobile, and desktop apps as well as chatbots. The toolset also includes reporting solutions, automated testing, and productivity tools, and comes with a range of support options. New this year is a free online training program for all license holders. With this, alongside thousands of demos with source code, comprehensive docs, and a full assortment of Visual Studio templates, you'll be up and running with the Progress Telerik and Kendo UI tools in no time. Download a free 30-day trial now at telerik.com download. Oh, and also, consider supporting .NET Rocks by making a monthly pledge at Patreon. Dot, dot net rocks dot com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Lillian Johnson. Oh, congratulations, Lillian. Yeah. Golf clap for you. Yeah, and Lillian just won a $200 Amazon gift card, compliments of Progress Telerik, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, with which she can order her own Amazon Echo. It's true. And if you want to jo join the fan club, just go to .NET Rocks .com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and you're in. 
We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And all right, Heather, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Oh, my. I would probably buy a new Dyson humidifier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. It's the winter. Right, Nevada. Yeah. Yeah. And a DJI drone. Nice. Because I've got a conference coming up that I need to start recording things for. Mm, nice. And a new computer, because who doesn't need to upgrade their computer every six months? Right. And maybe the new Google Pixel 3, because that looks like a really fun phone to have. And that's probably around $5,000 right there. Yeah, you're pretty you're pretty much there. I admit I have ordered a Pixel 3. I'm hanging uh, up my OnePlus. Yeah, they look good, don't they? Yeah, I love a reference phone. <laughs> Give me the one, the bare metal Google one, and, and I literally ordered it from Google with nothing on it. I don't want any carrier crap on it. I want it as bare as bare can be. Yep. So, I will report back soon. In fact, I think it's probably waiting for me back at home. I just haven't gone and picked it up yet. Hmm. This is a nice collection of stuff. The, you know, the drone thing's interesting because you can spend 500 bucks, you can spend 5,000 bucks, depending mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. You know, how much drone you really want. And the Dyson humidifier because it's a dry heat. Yes. Well, the Dryson humidifier, I actually have two of them already. And like, I found that they're probably the best humidifier out there. Nice. At $500, it's quite a large spend, but they have a UV light that like zaps the water as it's coming out. So it is also purifying the water too. Nice. Nice. And it's the quietest thing that you can ever find. And it's also got a fan built in. So plus it's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've they've always had a great aesthetic, those gizmos. Yeah. So some people complain because they're like, oh, I'm spending this much and I don't understand. It's just a humidifier. But like you can actually select the level from 10% humidity to 70% humidity at auto senses. And so, I, I mean, I'm talking about a humidifier. Right. But I mean, it's it's technology. It's amazing. Yeah, sure. I like when somebody gets warm and fuzzy about an appliance. It's like, that's a humidifier. <laughs> and it doesn't have an IP address, so how good could it be? <laughs> yeah. You never know. Somebody could have hacked something into that. It, it could actually have, like, spyware inside and be spying on people. But Well, I, that's inevitable. But <laughs> We were talking about, you know, all the Siri and Cortana and Alexa and all those bots and regular bots things that are listening, and that is UX, right? I mean, the speech as user interface is a thing. Is there such a thing as bad speech UX design? So, I think that it's it's more that the developers themselves forget how to engage people. So, yes, when you're starting the conversation, because you have to remember that people don't know what to do next when they're engaging with your bot. So the simplest thing is to start with a menu. Yeah. Because I know that, for example, with a lot of the Alexa games, like the trivia games, you can say like, hey, Alexa, start geek trivia. And then if it doesn't start by telling you what your commands are to it, 
then it's not fun mm. because you're you're just trying to figure out what you're supposed to say. Right. And then suddenly Alex is like, I don't understand. I don't, I don't know that command. I don't know yeah. what you're saying. Or worst case scenario, like on those Facebook messenger bots, you say hi and it doesn't respond. You say right. hello and it doesn't respond because it's only programmed to respond to like sup. and and then even if it does it doesn't know it's still waiting for the next wait word like so you need to let people know what it can do right and how to access that yeah for sure a big problem i find with these things is that they lose context very quickly and so you know you you have to ask a couple questions before you find out what you need to really do and instead Instead of just continuing the conversation with what you've already said and it's already understood as the context for your next statement or query, you have to start over from scratch every single time. And of course, interacting with people is not like that. You can refer to something you mentioned a half an hour ago, like we do in the show all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh yeah, your brain goes back there for the context and then you can give a reply that makes sense. That must be a tricky problem. Well, some of the bots, like, for example, you can save anything as a variable and it can be referred to. And I know hmm. Microsoft bot language, for example, I'm always, when I'm designing a bot with that, I'm, I'm always saving the responses for, from people as specific variables that hmm. can then be brought back at any point in time. So if I'm asking somebody a question, I'll actually like bring back what they said to pull it back to them to then bring that up again Hmm. if I need to ask them more context. Right. Yeah, I find that using these things in general, the context gets lost very quickly. But I guess the problem, of course, is when does the bot know when to ditch the context or does it ever ditch the context? Like, you know, we, we instinctively know when we're talking, oh, we've switched topics And the thing that we talked about a half an hour has no relevance anymore unless somebody refers to it directly. And it's very difficult to do that. Well, for example, if it's a game like the Geek Trivia game, if that game is over, then it resets its memory. Right. Right. Except for the player names. So it knows what to get rid of. Like it gets rid of the scores, but it keeps the players. Yeah. I see in games it'd be easy because you're under those constraints. But when you're having a conversation like, you know, Alexa, tell me about U.S. presidents. And then it'll say something general about the presidents. And then you say, what about John Adams? And maybe says something about John Adams. And then you say something like, who was he married to? Right? You're referring to he. Now it has to know the last proper noun that was a male that you referred to. Right? So things like that. But then half an hour later, after you're talking about Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, you say, Oh, yeah, that's right. He was married to Abigail, right? And it doesn't know which he you're talking to, but it should be able to infer that based on the connection. Or even ask that question. Did you mean this person, this person, or this person? Right. Yeah. Or, you know, look up the look up your answer, realize your answer is correct, and say, oh, do you mean James Madison? Yeah. Yeah, so that's something that you can definitely do. Rather than say, I didn't quite get that. One of the things that I've programmed, I didn't program a bot to do this, but I did program one of my platforms to do this is to never return no results to always return something like usually the last three recommendations or the top three trending or something yeah 
so that people have something to go on. So one key thing about UI, especially in anticipatory design, which is my field, is people are more willing to accept a wrong answer as long as you gave them an answer right. than no answer at all. It might be a little annoying, like Data in the early Star Trek Next Generation things where he would just go off on you know, mindless stuff when Picard's trying to ask him a pointed question. You know, and he's like, enough, right? Right. <laughs> might be a little annoying. Being stoned with a I don't know seems way worse than something wildly wrong that might be vaguely amusing or annoying. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's better to give somebody a template to work off of because people are happy to build from something as long as there is something to go on. Like you never want to be the person to put the first brick down. Right. But if somebody's already put something there, then you can either correct it or even go off on a tangent. True. Hey, I want to make a call back to your talk at NDC Sydney because I thought it was hilarious. This apps are making us dumber. <laughs> but I think the bigger piece of this was this whole idea of we're changing our UXs because of decision fatigue. I thought that was a very <laughs> profound thought. Yeah. So, really, the idea is that as designers, we have to understand that we are making well, not just as designers, as humans, we are now making over 35,000 decisions, conscious and unconscious, every day. Wow. And that is causing our brains to, to go into kind of an analysis paralysis. It, it's making us exhausted and unable to make even simple decisions, to make not just the complex ones like, what should I have for dinner, which is a complex decision, but mm -hmm. the simple ones like, I need to put clothes on for bed. What should I wear? Which generally are unconscious. Like, cause you normally are reaching for pajamas and changing, but sometimes people are just too tired and they fall asleep on the couch because their brain is just exhausted. So one of the things that we can do is remove some of those decisions in the apps that we are creating for people because hmm. we're also causing the problem by having people use apps because every 11 minutes people are checking their phone right that's more research that people are doing like an average of 84 times a day people are on their phone and they're doing something with it and that's not just glancing at the notifications that's actually unlocking it going in doing something and for every single moment of that their brain is active so the more we can do to remove things that your brain has to be active about, the better it is. Yeah, I agree. Is this where you get into this idea of anticipatory design? It's like, I'm going to take away decisions because I've already figured out what you want. Absolutely. Yeah. So, for example, in Netflix, when you're trying to figure out what movie you want to watch, the recommendation engine, if it was actually a good one for Netflix, would start playing something when you came in and it would be well, it's actually starting to do that now. It's starting to play trailers for you as soon as you come into Netflix. Right. But it still takes people an average of 15 to 20 minutes to find something inside Netflix, which is down from 30 to 45 minutes. So it's starting to work. It's still an amazingly long time. Like, it's amazing that it's that long. It, well, the problem is they have infinite scroll in both directions. 
Right. So this is this is the paradox of choice. You have yes. too much choice, so you can't decide. Analysis paralysis. Yes. Whereas Spotify is great for anticipatory design because they go in, they create a playlist for you based on recommendations from your friends, based on things that you already have on your phone. And it constantly updates with machine learning based on things that you are listening to and your friends were listening to and is popular. And so they have six curated playlists that you can just go in, hit hit play and be listening to music right away. You just hit one button right. and done. Right. I, I kind of like Spotify's effect where I ask it for a particular song and I have very eclectic tastes. And then it tries mightily to follow that with a song that I'll like. Yes. And the fact that it fails like 75% of the time, I find acceptable because normally it'd be 100%. Exactly. But once in a while, it gets a sign where like, not bad. Well done. And that's what I was talking about, how people are more willing to accept a failure as long as there was a suggestion mm, rather right. than the absence of something. It's also the, your attention level, too. I think this is very much a personal thing. But if you're just using music as background music, the fact that Spotify continues to play is the most gratifying thing it could be. If you just not notice that there's songs you've never heard before, that's fine. If it stopped, you'd notice it way more. So, it's, yep. it's doing its best to anticipate your need. How about that lovely feature of Pandora that stops after five, ten minutes and says, are you there? You haven't touched the screen in a long time. I'm going to stop playing. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Makes parties yep. really hard. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the point. It drives you <laughs> over to Spotify. I use, actually, I use Amazon Music now. Oh, really? Everything's there. It's no fuss, no muss. It integrates well with Alexa. And, you know, you just say, play this song by this person, and it plays. And isn't it free with Amazon Prime, too? I, I don't know. I have Amazon Prime, and I know I had to sign up for it separately, so maybe not. Maybe I did not knowing. Or you didn't have to pay for it. Or maybe you didn't, didn't actually pay for it, it's just you have to turn it on. Maybe. It's a very interesting dynamic. And I'm looking at the title of anticipatory design. And so, mm -hmm. are you so much anticipating what we're going to want next? Or it's more about building software that simply anticipates the customer need? So, it's a combination of both. Because mm -hmm. we have to design products that will choose for a customer what they're going to want. And that's not just software. It's also thinking about things like, I mean, using machine learning to know what products to stock in, in a retail store. Right. Using, like I was saying before, having a, a smart connected kitchen that knows that I'm 15 minutes away from home so that it should start cooking my turkey that's been waiting, you know, that kind of thing. Right. It's anticipating the needs of the customer with as minimal interaction from them as possible. And for that, it's a lot of future casting. So knowing what is possible on the outskirts of technology right now, and then building companies around that possibility. So yeah, I mean, it makes my job pretty cool when going into companies. So for example, working with financial services and thinking about, okay, well, what is money going to look like in yeah. 20 years? So how are we going to like not just manage money for people now, but make sure that the wealth that we're capturing for them now actually means something in the future? Yeah, definitely. Although, you know, now you're doing straight futurist stuff like that. It's pretty tricky. 
make those predictions. Absolutely. I mean, people have really screwed that up majorly in the past. So it's a balance of using things today and the things that we already know are out there for like the next five years or so. And then trying to balance that with good predictions of where the the world is coming so that you can just constantly adjust and just being agile. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's absolutely a challenge, but it's interesting to think about it from a UX perspective. We are trying to get to this point where you just don't even notice the computes around you anymore, right? Because it's just too much. I mean, I, I really think we're about 10 years away from that minority report kind of world where, I mean, everything is is heads up displays as we're walking around and mm. and people are like, oh, that's just so futuristic. But I mean, really, we're we're already mostly there. I mean, Pokemon Go proved that people are okay with a augmented reality tool and they're going to walk around with like showing their phone on everything anyway. So it's more who's going to get there first with the contact lenses or glasses or whatever that people are willing to wear that aren't Google Glass. Hmm. I don't think that they dislike Google Glass because of the way it looked. I think people make up their mind at a moment how good something is. And the moment they decide it isn't good enough, they find excuses not to like it. Well, you had one, Richard. Is that what you experienced? I have one. And so when I first wore it out, people wanted to put it on. Yeah. Once they put it on and they're not impressed with it, then you come up with terms like glass hole. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I, I mean, I un- I understand that. I had a Segway and I loved my Segway. Mm-hmm. And I I mean, I actually miss my Segway. I, w- I wish I still had it, but it was, I understand the, the whole Google Glass thing. I watched it. I was like, yep, these people are going to it's going to be the Segway all over again. I thought the Segway was so cool. And then I saw a demonstration of it. And there were all these people who were practically protesting it, saying, this is why America is fat and lazy. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? Come on. If you ride a moped or something like that. This is a good alternative. The quiet replacement to the Segway has been the monocycle. So there's these a little electric wheel with a pair of foot pads on. Yeah. That's all there is. And they're about a thousand bucks. Yeah. And you can carry them on a bus, right? Or on the subway. They're your last mile transport. You just plug them yep. into an outlet to charge them back up. Mm. But it's dealing with that last mile. And they're, you know, the Segway made all the noise. And then these things quietly came along, solving a couple of the key problems. Like, yeah, you're allowed to take it places. There's lots mm-hmm. of places, areas banned Segways. Right. And yet nobody's really done anything about the electric monocycle. So I think that's a really interesting angle on this. I'm convinced the visor will be the manifestation of ambient compute and you'll wear it on your face and everybody else will wear them too. The same way that smartphones, once we all were using smartphones, we stopped worrying about the social norms we were breaking with smartphones. You know, the visor will just become normal, but it's the Mm -hmm. replacement for the smartphone because it does everything the smartphone does and a bunch more. And I think a big part of it is this anticipatory design side, that once I have a set of sensors on my face that can see what's going on around me, that can hear and see everything that's going on around me, it can start anticipating my needs better and better and better. Yep. It'll level up the addictive qualities of smartphones in a way we haven't even thought of. Mm. The same way you basically roll over out of bed and pick up your phone, like you will just put your visor on your face before you do anything else. Absolutely. And you just have to, I mean, people just have to accept that they will be plugged into the matrix and somebody will own all of their data and they will be happy to give it away because it'll give them 
basically a life that is so much better that anyone is alive right now has ever known. Now, I'm going to argue that part because there is a way for us to control our own data. I think you're making a non-dichotomous choice there. It's not you don't get this if you don't agree to give up all these things. Mm. Social media has now been successful enough and had consequences enough that we're beginning to see regulation around it. And those regulations will apply to the next generation of devices that come down the path. We don't have to pick one or the other. We can choose to be more responsible with this stuff. But it's not simple. That There are no easy answers here. But if anything, the smartphones taught us that every adult human on this planet is willing to be a cyborg, is willing to have a digital extension themselves, because the power it gives is so important. Communicate with anyone in the world, get information on demand. Whether it's true or not is a separate discussion. Mm, yeah. But, you know, the reality is we have access to tremendous amounts of information with this digital extension of ourselves. We can just make it better. Well, and you remember what my... Uh truthfinder.com website was at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. So during the course of the show, I've been pressing the next buttons to get my, my report on myself and yep. paid the 23 bucks and downloaded a PDF. And apparently it said I had a criminal record. <gasps> and when I looked at the details, it's a different Carl Franklin. Sure. Somebody in Hartford. Oh, it's a nearby... And it's not me, and it's on my somehow connected. Well, you know, poking around with a site, like I spent a little time on that site when you brought it up as well, and you talk about design anticipation. Yeah. That's After a couple of minutes with that site, I just call it a scam. Well, except for the fact that the information is good. Except that it wasn't. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, fair enough. But the more relevant thing here is you are looking at a con game pattern in that website. I won't tell you how much stuff costs. You know perfectly well how software works and there's no reason for any of those things to take that long, right? Yeah. So, what Richard's talking about here is that there's just a series of, you know, please wait while we're gathering yeah. information and there's a lot of data here and we got to put it all together. And you know it's lies. It's all lies. All of that stuff took seconds. Yeah, that is lies. And while you're waiting, we're going to tell you about all the awesome stuff that this is. And then when you go to right. print your report, that's when, ah, oh, that's going to cost you some money. Oh, but wait, we're also going to see if we can get you to allow notifications while you're at it so that we can get hacked into your thing. And you got to give us an email address. And yep. these are all the behaviors of a bad actor. Yeah. Um, that said, it is a very effective website. Yeah. Great UX. Yeah. Like awesome UX. Yeah. Because it is using psychological manipulation to get the results they want. And I don't want to misrepresent the data that I got. It's all, all the data is there. It's all accurate, except for this. This is one piece of, you know, 144 pages, you know, one item in it. But interesting. We are living in the matrix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is very interesting. Heather, what's in your inbox? What's on your to-do list? What's next? So, a couple of things. I am planning a conference in 2020, so getting that underway. It's in Antarctica called Antarcticomf. Whoa! Yeah, so we've got the call for speakers open right now, and that's taking up a little bit of my time. It's a mastermind slash retreat because there's no internet down in Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to serve ice cream? 
Uh, actually, well, it's on a cruise ship, and they do have uh, an ice cream parlor on the ship. So, yes, there will be ice cream and penguins and penguins. Awesome. I've never had a penguin. What do they taste like? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I hear puffins are delicious, though. Uh, uh, and porgs. Porgs, I, I hear, are good, too. <laughs> so, also planning a wedding as well, because I'm getting married next year. Oh, congrats. Thank you. New house, new hub. Fantastic. <laughs> all of that. So hopefully I'm not overcommitting myself to uh, all those things. And I'm also being the fractional CTO of companies and speaking and I'm an advisory board chair for an engineering school. And so all my normal stuff, writing my columns and things. But the, the two main things are planning a conference and a wedding. Awesome. You know, hugely time consuming. Yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today, and uh, it's been a delight. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Fun conversation. All right. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a